Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. We're continuing our study of Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 today. And in our previous episode, we said that God's gifts are found in specific offices. And we're talking specifically of God's gifts to the church with regard to leadership that fosters the unity that he's calling for at the beginning of the chapter. So God's gift of leadership in the church enables the unity that he desires. That's kind of the overarching principle that we are working with as we dive into the text today. And we made reference in the previous episode as well that a lot of people think of spiritual gifts as uh, the more typical gifts that we see, like um, hospitality and mercy and those types of gifts that people often talk about. But a spiritual gift is one that comes from God. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so a gift that comes from God specifically to the church uh, also includes the people that he raises up to lead the church. And so we saw in the previous episode that there are four specific offices of leadership, uh, apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, is kind of like a missionary, and then the pastor-teacher. Today, we are going to continue this discussion by looking at verses 12 through 14 with the idea that God's gifts have a specific purpose. So these gifts of of leaders in the church have a specific purpose. Why does he give us the apostles? Why does he give us the prophets? Why does he give missionaries or evangelists? Why does he gift the local church with a pastor shepherd? And so we could we could say that this is subsumed under a purpose clause, right? They have a specific purpose for or to, to do this. And verse 12 says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And uh, there's a lot in here, but let's just dive in. First of all, the first purpose of the gifts of leadership is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. This word equipping literally could be translated to put right. It speaks of setting a bone or mending nets. Now we see its usage there uh, in that regard in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, as well as the restoration of the lapsed, Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, when a, when a man is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Equip somebody, right, in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So that's what it means there with regard to uh, putting right. But we also want to focus on the last aspect. It's not just to put in right or to uh, mend nets or to get everything in the right thing. What are they supposed to be doing? The saints are to be equipped for the work of the ministry. And this is one of those points that really we should just spend a little bit of time on and dwell on. And that is the fact 
that the work of the ministry is to be done by the people who constitute the local church. So a lot of people, especially in today's culture, I think have it backwards. They look at, you know, the fact that, and the scriptures do say that he who is able to uh, make a living by the gospel should be supported by that, right? So we're talking specifically about the pastor teacher in this regard. And if they are ministering the word, they should be supported in that if that's their full-time job. And so a lot of people say, well, because the pastor is a paid position, therefore they should be doing all the work of the ministry, or at least the lion's share of it. And yet we get from this verse that the work of the ministry is actually to be done by the vast majority of the church. Okay. It shouldn't be that 90% of the work is done by 10% of the people. It should actually be the other way around. 90% of the work uh, should be done by 90% of the people, uh, if we could say that. Okay. The, the work of the ministry, what is the work of the ministry? Well, it's obviously great commission living, great commission living is disciple making. And so there has to be an equipping for disciple making. There has to be a teaching about how to do that. That also means that the work of evangelism, not necessarily talking missions here, like the office of the evangelist that we talked about in the previous episode, but going out into our community and following that pattern in Acts 1, 8, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, you know, we're speaking in concentric circles. There was a book written on evangelism uh, by that title many years ago. And so when we look at that and we have people within those circles, our immediate area, the immediately surrounding area, and then a little bit farther out, and then obviously into the broad world, we should be working towards the ministry in that regard. So we're establishing, we talked about redemptive relationships, we're cultivating those in the natural rhythm of life, and we are beginning to expose people to the gospel. We are declaring to them, as Mark says, preach the gospel to every creature. So we are preaching the gospel. And by we, I mean we, the people in the church, we Christians. It's not just the pastor who proclaims the gospel. We all have a duty to do that. We do it. And, and by the way, the person who's best equipped to share the gospel with your best friend is you. It's not me. <laughs> your best friend doesn't know me. Uh, chances are, right? There's a 99% chance that I don't know your best friend unless you're one of my, you know, in, in my close circle of people. Uh, and uh, But otherwise, I don't probably know your best friend, especially your very good friend who's unsaved they're going to have a lot more trust that is built in that relationship with you. And so you are the one who has the ability to say something meaningful, to declare to them sometimes what people consider the hard truths of the gospel. People don't like hearing that they're sinners and that the wages of sin is death, but you have earned that audience with them to do that. That's the work of the ministry. And then guess who's going to do the discipleship? It's going to be you, not the pastor. The pastor can't personally disciple 50 or 100 or 200 people. It just can't happen. And so what does he do? He equips the people in the church 
to go out there and take those first steps, to go out there and to begin to make disciples and to teach other people how to make disciples and to model that so that the work of the ministry can be done. That happens through the ministry of the word, okay? So we're dwelling long on this, but the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, that's what a pastor does. So the role of the church and and why we meet together should be for the building up of the body and for the equipping of the body. That's why I bristle with this idea that people say that bring the unsaved masses into church and let them hear from a polished person and, uh, you know, who's an apologist of the scripture and so forth. Well, okay, there's a time and a place. And yes, all the scriptures point to Christ, but why do we meet together on the Lord's day? We meet together to worship God, to glorify him. And by the way, to the unsaved person, that should seem pretty strange. That shouldn't feel uh, comfortable and homey. That, that shouldn't be like, oh, I'm just going from one setting to another, and this is very entertaining, and I like it, and eh, there's a little bit of religious stuff in there, but I'm okay. Otherwise, I really like all this stuff. Uh, no, if an unbeliever walks into the doors of your church, they should feel very, very out of place because we are here worshiping the triune God. All of our songs are not about us. They're about him. Uh, our, we put a heavy emphasis on the word of God and reading it and teaching it and proclaiming it. We spend time together as a body of believers in corporate prayer. Everything that we do in our service is to be about the glorification of God. And as we expound the scriptures, and we teach them and expose them and exposit them, right? Before the people, not only do we pray that God is honored in that by uh, the parsing of Scripture, but we also pray that it would work to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So that's the first point. That's the first specific purpose of the leader uh, that he's given. Secondly, it's for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, I think all of these work together. Not only are the, is the body of Christ, the church, doing the work of the ministry, but they are to be built up. And that's what we just talked about. And that happens through every element of the service, building up the body of Christ. We are strengthening them. We are uh, enabling them to, to be a solid block, living stones, as Peter calls us, and uh, so that others can be built on top of us and, and it just continues, the work of, of growing and, and the body of Christ continues to grow, continues to be strengthened. Okay, so there's equipping, there's building up of the body of Christ, and then it comes towards a goal, right? Until we all attain the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. So there is a goal included in the purpose of having leaders. Not only do the leaders equip, not only do the leaders build up, but the leaders work towards a goal, and the goal is one that we all share. The leaders are a part of this, and everybody in the church is a part of this. And what are we working towards? Firstly, we're working towards the unity of the faith. There's that word unity again. So that harkens back to the call in verses 1 to 6 of for unity, but it's clarified. It's not a generic, unqualified unity. It's not unity at all costs uh, with regard or with disregard to doctrinal limitations and so forth. 
because we see that general calls for general unity without information are, are basically useless. So it is a specific doctrinal unity that comes from the equipping of the saints, right? How does a pastor equip the saints? Through the teaching of the word. And that's going to solidify, codify uh, this doctrinal unity. So that's what we're trying to work for is the unity of the faith that we all hearken around and, and gather around the essentials of the gospel and the essentials of the scripture. And then with that, a second aspect of that goal, that unity of faith is also going to be commensurate with the knowledge of the Son of God. All of this, by the way, has to do with our knowledge of the scriptures, right? That's what the pastor teacher is doing, shepherding. They're guarding from people who are bringing false gospel in. They're trying to identify false teaching, warn the flock, stay away from that, be on guard, look at the dangers of that. And then not only warning, you can't just have an entire ministry built on the warning system, but you're, you're going to actively be teaching and the teaching of the scripture, the expositing of the scripture, the tearing it apart and connecting it to all the old Testament and to creation and to the cross and, and redemption. And where do the people of Israel fit in? And how does God's judgment at the end of times fit in and, and all those things, right? That is helping our knowledge of the son of God grow. Knowledge comes through the exposition of scripture comes through the study, comes through personal devotion, but God has gifted the pastor teacher to the church so that they can grow in knowledge. You need that. That's, that's God's gift to the church. <laughs> so unity stems from knowledge. Uh, it's not a discarding of knowledge. And specifically, we're talking about a knowledge of Christ. And this is done in the community of the church. The individual, the lone wolf Christian, is the one who is terribly immature because this journey towards God and Christ is not to be done in a vacuum. You don't do it by yourself. The Holy Spirit has placed you into the church, and then he has directed the church to assemble in local assemblies that are the local visible representations of the church. That's your local church. And so your journey towards Christ's likeness, your journey of sanctification, your journey of ultimate sanctification will be realized when you finally see Christ. You are to do that with the body of Christ because you are a part of that body as are other Christians around you. And so that's the goal. So there's unity of faith. There's knowledge of the Son of God. There's a third aspect to that goal in uh, verse 13 here what he calls the mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again, that's in apposition here. Uh, so let's take a look at that. And then he qualifies that more so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Okay. We'll see if we can cover all that in these next couple minutes. This third aspect of this goal, not only unity of faith, knowledge of the son of God, but now mature manhood that's now explained in verse is 13 and 14. What does mature manhood mean? What does it look like? Well, first of all, he describes it this way, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, fullness, pleroma, 
uh, means the fullness of Christ himself, uh, that we will grow into uh, what God wants us to be, and this will be finally and fully realized when we see Christ, but we are to grow into that as we grow in our knowledge of Christ. We can't stay at one place indefinitely and, and forever on this earth. And then he says, no longer as children. And by the way, what he's talking about here are spiritual children. We're talked about, or we're, what we're talking about is people who are at the beginning of their journey of faith. We should be growing to the point that we're no longer easily swayed by things that may have easily swayed us as young believers. We're growing constantly because as a young believer, and the scripture gives us this principle and illustration many times, right? Think of that the way that we see the human development. As a baby, we cannot give a baby, uh, if, if, if you've had babies, right, uh, or been around them, you cannot give a baby the same solid food that you yourself might eat, not, not at the beginning. They can't have meat. They can't have a steak. Their, their digestive system doesn't allow them to process that. They can't do it. And that's why we have those specific calls. And, you know, you're ready to be, you know, and even in one place in scripture, you should be ready for solid meat. And yet we're having to go back to the milk here. And so when he talks about children, he says, listen, there is an aspect where somebody who's young in the faith, a child in the faith, is tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning. This is the propensity of an immature believer, which is why we need discipleship in the church. You're not just satisfied with somebody hearing the gospel and then staying there, uh, just acknowledging that Christ is the Savior and then being done with that, because then somebody comes along and offers them a counterpoint to that and says, well, what about this? And what about this? And this fits in with this. I mean, I can think of an example. This is now many years ago. Uh, we're talking over 20 years ago. I was a younger believer, but was growing by God's grace. And I remember in this particular setting, I was, I was overseas. This is while I was in the military. There was somebody uh, that I knew who was really very close to Christ, uh, beginning to to acknowledge and, and meditate on the gospel. And um, just due to different circumstances and whatever, I wasn't really a part of this person's uh, spiritual journey, although we talked and then we kind of kept in communication a little bit over the years, especially with the development of social media later. And I come to find out that this person just a wholesale abandoned the gospel and even though for a year or two was interested in the scriptures, had really gotten sucked away by other false doctrines, by Eastern mysticism and other religions, and all of a sudden uh, did not have room for the exclusivity of Christ. This happens when you are a child in the faith. And so one of the reasons for the gift, one of the, the reasons that God has given leaders to the church for the building up and to have these purposes, unity in the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, is to lead young believers into maturity in the faith uh, so that they would no longer be children in the faith, so that they would no longer be tempted uh, by every wind of doctrine. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun uh, Solomon said that, and and that has so many implications, but specifically doctrinal, right? There's no new notion or fad that's going to come up, but that isn't some other recycled heresy if it counters the gospel. Uh, there's just nothing new under the sun. Uh, 
And so when somebody comes to you and says, oh, I found this and, uh, you know, the Bible's wrong and Jesus isn't the only way and salvation isn't what you think and God doesn't really exist. There's no heaven. There's incarnation. We just get recycled back onto the earth or, or, or this one's very popular annihilationism. We just all die and poof, turn into dust. I mean, that's what, that's what uh, a lot of people who are, are, atheistic uh, science, uh, supposedly, right? Even though the greatest scientific minds in history were believers all the way up until like, I don't know, yesterday. Uh, But really, it's really interesting that a lot of people who are astrophysicists are now claiming that, you know, we're nothing but cosmic dust of the stars and and we turn into nothing. Uh, You know, their only consciousness that we have is right here on earth. And afterwards, there's nothing. They are going contrary to the knowledge of God and don't believe it. It's a lie. It's a lie from our enemy, our spiritual enemy, the devil. It is a lie that our flesh would like to believe and and it goes against the, the truth of scripture. And we don't want to be taken about by every wind of doctrine and by people who can be very crafty with their words and, and deceitful schemes, which is what he's talking about. The things that people come up with in their own depraved minds can be deceiving. Okay, and and this word for human cunning uh, carries with it the idea of cheating at dice. Uh, so we're talking about trickery. They know that they're not speaking the truth, but they're trying to trick you into something to take you along with them by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Well, I've gone long, but I hope that we see here as we looked at the specific purpose of the gifts of leadership for unity, we can see just how important that is. Because the leaders in the church are equipping you to go out and do the work of the ministry. They are building you up as a believer in the body, not just the church universal, but among your local church. And the goal of all of this, it's the goal that, by the way, pastors should be working towards, and God is working in them in this way too. But we're all working towards this, that we may have unity in the faith that's, that comes with doctrinal clarity and exposition, that we grow in the knowledge of the Son of God, that we work towards maturity so that we're not easily taken away from the faith. It's really an incredible gift that God has given to the church in the form of leadership. And once we begin to see that, it will make us more appreciative of who God is and what he has done in the church. So we'll leave this episode there and we'll pick it up in uh, verse 15 in our next episode and finish out our discussion on leadership and unity with verses 15 and 16. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.